first, a word from our sponsor, Film Movement Plus, a streaming service for fans of independent and foreign film, delivers a world of award-winning entertainment, including some of the best movies from prestigious festivals around the globe. Among the hundreds of titles waiting for you to discover are acclaimed films you won't find anywhere else. Plus, newly restored classics and award-winning shorts with new films added every week. Available on all your favorite devices, including Roku, Apple TV, and Amazon Fire, Film Movement Plus is priced at $5.99 a month. But Watch With Gen listeners can get a 14-day free trial, plus 30% off their annual subscription using the promo code GEN30. And starting right now in the streaming service, you can read and watch my in-app film recommendations. It's a diverse and exciting lineup of six titles from around the world that I can't wait for you to discover. Sign up today at filmmovementplus.com. Hey, this is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com and filmintuition on social media and letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. Today, I am so pleased to welcome to the podcast a new friend I made last summer during Cinephile Game Night, where we played on opposite sides. Me as a guest with Team The Film Stage at Lincoln Center and Mitchell Beaupre as part of the very delightful Team Letterboxd. You can watch us, by the way, on YouTube, which I'll be sure to link to in the Patreon post when this episode drops. Currently based in Newark, Delaware, Mitchell is not only the senior editor at one of my favorite services, Letterboxd, but they're also the co-host of their recently launched podcast, Weekend Watch List, which you can find in the stream for the Letterboxd show. Additionally, a prolific freelance film journalist and stellar interviewer for such outlets as The Film Stage, Paste Magazine, The Playlist, and Little White Lies, and a colleague you can find on Twitter at it is Mitchell. I want to thank them so much for taking the time to join me. So Mitchell, how are you doing and how's spring treating you so far? Yes, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I'm, I'm really good. Thanks so much for having me on. Um, it was, yeah, it was great to get to meet each other during the Cinephile game night. And I had been a fan of your podcast and your work since, you know, long before that. But then when we did oh. that, I was like, maybe this is kind of my way in to maybe get on the podcast, you know? Um, yes. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's been really great to get to know you over, you know, the last several months since that happened. And yeah, um, yeah it's, it's really exciting to be here talking about one of my favorite filmmakers. Um, it's been a lovely kind of week to just get to revisit so many of his films and get like the vibe going and just really kind of mellow out as the season is turning, which I didn't think about that being part of it as well. Yeah. Oh, that's a perfect link there. It does yeah. kind of seem like Jarmish weather. And it is also so great watching your star continue to rise on the professional front, especially the, over these past several months, as you conduct great interviews and lend your voice to some very important discussions on how we relate to movies. So what have you been working on lately? Is there anything listeners either might have missed or should be on the lookout for soon? 
Um, yeah, I think, you know, kind of the big one is uh, this week, yesterday or two days ago at um, Paste, I published this or they published a, you know, piece that I wrote about um, the film, Abel Ferrer's film 444 Last Day on Earth, which was more kind of this uh, very personal essay that I wrote in relation to um, kind of my experience with watching that film at, at kind of the beginning of the pandemic and how it connected to me based on kind of my personal experience of living with an autoimmune disease, living as somebody who is very close to kind of um, having an understanding of mortality in a way um, oh, yeah. and a fear of mortality and yeah, really. having to process that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so that's, that's what the, the piece is really centered on that. And, um, and especially during kind of the pandemic, which I know, you know, you and I have connected a lot talking over Twitter about kind of the, the very specific circumstances of living, you know, with the disability during the pandemic and just kind of how that has been going and how it's not great. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's kind of the big thing that I was, I was working on that for a while. I was very anxious about it coming out because I don't often put a lot of my personal stuff into my writing. Um, I'm with and you. yeah. And like, it's, it's one of those weird things where, you can read other people doing that and it means like so much and you can connect so much with other people's writing, but then putting yourself in that same position. Like I, I always wonder about, you know, being objective as much as you can or being subjective and, you know, analyzing the art, but like not wanting to put too much of myself into it. Um, but the, the response has been really, really rewarding and it's been really encouraging for me. And it's just really meant a lot to me to see, people connect with it, like people reaching out and saying that they like really appreciate me, like sharing uh, my story like that. And especially people who say that they can relate to the experience, which is um, really nice. So that's, that's kind of like the big thing that's come out lately coming up soon. I've got a couple cool interviews coming out, um, both of the playlist. I interviewed Justin Kurzel, the director of um, true history of the Kelly gang and the oh, Michael yeah. Fassbender Macbeth and um, Snowtown, his new movie knit Ram is coming out soon on um, it'll be on in theaters and like on demand from um, IFC films. And I interviewed him about that, which was a very heavy kind of interview because the film is about the um, 1996 Port Arthur mass shooting in Tasmania in oh, Australia. Wow. So that was, that was a heavy one. Um, but I think a really good interview that I'm excited to have up. And then and also at the playlist, probably a week or two after that, I interviewed, um, Jacques Odiard, the French director of films like a prophet and, uh, read my lips, which are two of like my favorite films and his new movie Paris 13th district is coming out. So we, I, uh, interviewed him about that, which was actually a really fun interview, which was nice to kind of have that balance between the two. Yeah. Um, they happened like within like a week of each other. And one was very heavy. One was a lot lighter. The film Paris 13th District is a lot more of like a light kind of bouncy comedy than uh, ODR's usual work, which is very like heavy and very like machismo in general. Um, so yeah, people can check those out at the playlist within like the coming weeks. Oh, that's so exciting. I bookmarked your piece on 444 because I had so much going on this week and I was yeah. very <laughs> excited to dive into it because we're both Defoe people and yeah. we're bonded by our own <laughs> medical issues. And I know how scary it can be to, uh, you know, unveil your soul or share these things, especially it's like scary on one level when it's you, but then when you have to talk about you know, your family or other people, it gets even 
dicier because you're not the only one putting yourself out there. You're putting the people you love. So I admire people who can do it and just, you know, go on Twitter and put these super personal threads out or write these gorgeous essays with like not even a care or a worry about doing that. But for me, like I will wake up at two in the morning and think about, oh my goodness, like, you know, what am I doing? Yeah. 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 It's like putting your phone number on a billboard. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was, um, yeah. The thing about like putting other people in your life into the writing is definitely the scariest thing. Like I, I had published it. It was already getting really good response. Obviously, you know, Jacob, the editor over at Pace really liked it and, you know, was happy to put it out. And so that felt really, you know, awesome, but even as those were kind of coming in, my partner, Sam, didn't read it until the following day. So like I got all this good word. And then I was like, still so nervous about them reading it. Cause I was like the most nervous that I am about anybody reading it. It's going to be them reading it. And they obviously said, you know, really nice, wonderful things about it. But like, yeah, people that I know reading it, my parents too, I was very nervous about my parents reading it. Of course. Yeah. So scary. And I can't wait to check out your interviews. Odiard, I recently revisited the Sisters Brothers, which was so fun. I remember liking it a lot when it came out, but watching it again this time, I just appreciated it on a whole different level for what it's uh, saying about masculinity, gender, and just the the roles and the relationships. I love the duos throughout and how they change over the course of the film, Un Prophet. I mean, the movies you mentioned. So really can't wait for that one in particular. Good job, Mitchell. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, very, very excited for both of those. The Sisters Brothers is such a good film too. And you, when we're recording this, you just yesterday did the DVD Netflix, you know, live chat on Twitter about modern Westerns and everything and Westerns in general, but you were talking specifically about modern Westerns that are part of it. And yeah, I was definitely having Sisters Brothers in mind too. It's such an underrated, very fun movie. I mentioned in my interview with him, I mentioned that movie and mentioned just how funny it is and like what a good comedy it is. And he like, his eyes like widened when I mentioned it being a comedy. And he was like, thank you so much for calling it a comedy. Like a lot of people don't get that. And I was like, oh, I can't imagine how people wouldn't get that. Like, it's so funny. Yeah. I think it plays even funnier. Like the second time you watch yeah. the first time, mm-hmm. I mean, the tone is all over the place. Like at first it seems absurd. And then it's like, is this like McCabe and Mrs. Miller? Like what is happening? And the second time you watch it, yeah, you really get the humor, which is great. Yes. Well, when we were trying to come up with a good theme idea, you gave me several excellent (laughs) options, including actor Willem Dafoe, who's one of our true loves and might just be our next subject. But I found myself seriously drawn to your suggestion to take a closer look at the films of iconoclastic director Jim Jarmusch, or more specifically, Jarmusch's work across the decades in the movies Mystery Train, Ghost Dog, The Way of the Samurai, Broken Flowers, and Patterson. We'll go deeper into the films in just a moment, and heads up to listeners that there will be spoilers ahead, so proceed with caution if you haven't seen them. But before we dive in, I would love to know more about your interest in history with the films of Jim Jarmusch and particularly why he's someone you knew that you wanted to talk about today. Yeah, it's, you know, when we were talking about doing it, I was thinking I was racking my brain. I came up with a very long list of like potential ideas. And then I sent you, I narrowed that down to probably still a little bit too long of a list of ideas. You were all good though. Yeah. <laughs> 
I appreciate that. I was very nervous about sending a list of like 10 things and being like, I don't know if this is like annoying, <laughs> um, <laughs> no. but yeah, Jarmish is somebody who, you know, I think as people who take in a lot of art and, you know, film, we kind of develop relationships with certain like actors and directors through like our personal connections with them and everything. And Jarmish is somebody who, for me, has a really special place as somebody who I've ended up almost unintentionally um, meeting at several points in my life as a kind of like comfort for me. I kind of first discovered his films through Dead Man uh, when I was like a teenager, which is an odd one to start with. I think I just saw like friends. I was like first getting into film when I was like 15 and saw like friends talking about how good that was. And so I watched it and was like, I have no idea what to make of this. Like, this is like <laughs> such a odd movie. So I, I just didn't really get it, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and now, now I love it. I've revisited it since seeing like his other films and everything. And I really like it in a different way, but I, because of that, I didn't really get into his other films. Like at that same time, I thought like, maybe he's just like, not for me. You know, you kind of have that experience, yeah. like sometimes with directors where you watch the wrong one at the wrong time. And you just think like, oh, you know, I'll start watching other films instead of like other people that I think I would like more. Maybe this director just isn't like my vibe, but I, so you know, speaking of kind of like disability and everything, I developed this autoimmune disease that really came on strong when I was like 19, 20-ish. And for a long time, doctors couldn't figure out what it was that was going mm-hmm. on. Like I I just wasn't able to like digest food properly. And so I just kept getting like weaker and weaker and weaker. And there was a point there where like for three years, I couldn't really get out of bed uh, oh, because man. of it. And like, they were just, you know, trying to figure out like what it was and everything, but they couldn't figure it out. And like, I wasn't getting anything in. So I was just getting, you know, weaker and couldn't, couldn't stand up even or anything. So I was during that time, I was obviously watching a lot of movies because that was kind of my only real, you know, uh, distraction, but also my only way to really keep myself entertained, but also engage with, you know, anything going on. And Mm -hmm. it was, I mean, it was a godsend, you know, um, to have that and, at one point when I started getting back into Jarmish, just, you know, renting DVDs and Blu-rays from Netflix, getting them in like all the time, constantly. Um, I I can't remember if it was Mystery Train or if it was Night on Earth that I like started with where I was like, well, let me give another Jarmish a shot. Um, I know it was one of those two. And it was at a point too, where I was like kind of at my lowest because I had been in bed so long. I started getting like sores and everything. Like, oh, yeah. so I couldn't, I couldn't even lay on my back anymore. Ugh, I was like laying on my side all day long. Mm. And so it was like, I really can't imagine like a lower point for me, just like emotionally just feeling, you know, oh, so God. upset and watching his films ended up really transporting me and really giving me kind of a distraction, but also just like a, a soothing kind of vibe, like a place where I just like felt really like a warm blanket kind of feeling, oh, you know, good. and, and it was like a really hard place for me to find that even in watching, you know, a ton of movies, I was still distracted all the time at that point. And especially I think kind of plottier movies were a little bit difficult for me to stay like engaged with, like, sure. which sometimes could be a good thing. At the same time, I was kind of really getting into Billy Wilder, which are very, you know, plot heavy. Um, <laughs> you really want to follow like the dialogue and everything. Yeah. But Jarmish is so much more, and I'm sure we'll get into it a lot. Jarmish is so much more about these like kind of like poetic films. And, you know, on Twitter, you described Patterson recently as being a tone poem, which I think yes. is you know very apt. And his, his films in general are very like loose 
soft and very kind of like free form and very jazzy. And even his earlier ones, they're kind of like, it was perfect for me being in the situation that I was in at the time, because I, it gives you kind of the option to engage with them as much as you're, you know, wanting and willing to engage with them. So you really get to make out of his films, what you want to make out of them. And so that that's where it really started with me with really getting into his films. And then I immediately saw mystery train and night on earth and absolutely love both of them. So then I ended up just devouring like everything else that he had at that point and just catching up with everything. And then in the years since then, like that was probably around like 2010. So before like only lovers left alive was probably his like one after that. Um, and then now every time that a new movie of his comes out, it's like an event for me. Um, no. so yeah, it's, and it just keeps kind of going back to that. Oh, I love that so much. And I'm so glad that you discovered his movies at that point in your life and that they were there for you. For me, it was probably um, Scorsese when I was a kid. Right. I grew up uh, with, you know, spine issues and chronic pain. And this is before I really developed more of the genetic side with the, the lungs and the heart and all of that stuff that kind of followed later. But when I was a kid, I couldn't go run and do things quite as much mm -hmm. as other kids. So I was stuck in the house, but I loved movies. Like the only time I ever got in trouble in school was in second grade for talking about movies during quiet time. <laughs> like seriously, had to put my name on the board. It's like, Shut up, Jenny, stop talking about movies. So I loved movies very much, but I think probably Hitchcock was like my first favorite but it was really the movies of Scorsese. And then my mom purchased me like Scorsese on Scorsese and a couple books. And she worked in a library and would always bring things home. And I kept reading about him. And I call him the patron saint of sick kids everywhere or sick yeah. film buffs everywhere because he grew up. <laughs> because Yeah, with, exactly. Yeah, really bad asthma and would watch movies and be taken to the theater and, you know, had to stare out the window and other kids like doing this stuff. And so I had that sort of bond with Scorsese at that time. I didn't discover Jarmish actually until I think high school. It was the video store by my house just happened mm. to have this like Sundance section and mm. they had Stranger Than Paradise in that section or Sundance Channel recommends something like that. And I brought it home and just completely fell in love with it. And absorbed all of the other ones that I could. I watched them very quickly. Dead Man was not my favorite. I do need to revisit <laughs> that one though, because I am a Western person. I think it was just yeah. too absurdist, too bleak, but I do remember liking like the Neil Young score and the Robbie Mueller yeah. cinematography. So I should give it another shot, especially after that chat yesterday. So many people were firing at me like, Dead, or, Dead Man is the best, Jen. You got to watch Dead Man again. And so I promise I'm going to to do that <laughs> but um you know stranger than paradise is still probably my favorite of his mm -hmm. films i would say maybe night on earth might be the quote-unquote best but mm -hmm. damn it patterson <laughs> is such a good one too that's a masterpiece mystery train i mean you know so many of these are great and i'm really excited to get into them with you and i'm again i'm just very glad that you were able to discover him at a time you needed him because I can relate to that. And that really means the world. Yeah. Yeah. The Scorsese, the Scorsese thing for you is so fitting because exactly that, whenever I think of being somebody, you know, who has been sick and had to just, you yeah. know, 
dive into movies because of that. I always think like, well, Scorsese did it. So like, it's not, I'm not that uncool because I'm doing this. No, Coppola was a sick kid. I mean, there's a lot of us. Yes. (laughs) So (laughs) exactly. Well, we're starting things off with the fourth and final film that Jim Jarmusch made in the 1980s. Following his debut with Permanent Vacation, his international breakout hit Stranger Than Paradise, which remains a favorite, and his first experiment with a genre-centric focus with the film that introduced the world to Roberto Benigni with Down by Law. A staggeringly creative period for the writer-director, his next film, the one we're focusing on, 1989's Mystery Train, was perhaps a test run for Night on Earth and was his most ambitious film to date. Drawing on his favorite motifs and themes, including outsiders in America, traveling someplace new, the banality of everyday life, and his strengths in selecting natural performers like Italian actress Nicoletta Broski and Japanese stars Yuki Kudo and Masatoshi Nagase and musicians like Joe Strummer and Screamin' Jay Hawkins, the film plays out in Memphis across three vignettes set on the same night with overlapping timelines and situations that come to a head in the same cheap hotel. Featuring great music by composer John Lurie, and of course cuts by artists like Elvis, along with the gorgeous, lightly expressionistic cinematography by Robbie Mueller that punctuates its shadows with flashes of brilliant color. There's a lot for Jarmusch fans to love. So talk to me, Mitchell, about Mystery Train. Yeah, so in in picking, like, because we, the idea of, you know, covering Jarmusch and wanting to focus on, you know, a specific number of films, like four-ish, you know, not not covering the whole filmography, although I'm sure we'll get into like some of his other ones too. The yeah. idea came to try and pick one from each decade. So like picking one from the 80s was very tough. I think picking one from each decade was tough, but, you know, like I do really love Stranger Than Paradise. I love Down By Law as well, but maybe because Mystery Train was, you know, one of the first ones that I saw it really holds a special place in my heart and it's for Jarmusch it's really tough to pick like a favorite but if I had to pick one I think it would probably be Mystery Train and I think that part of that or maybe a lot of that has to do with just feeling like the vibes in it are like so immaculate like I just from the very opening of it on the train like I just feel really sucked into it like totally And it does this really great thing, which I think, you know, Night on Earth does too. Coffee and cigarettes, maybe not as much, but like anthology films are so tough to get right because you get into that tricky water of like one of them's inherently going to be more interesting than the other mm-hmm. ones. And so like people will kind of rate the film overall lower because it's like, well, it's kind of uneven, you know, but I think that especially Mystery Train and Night on Earth every single section is so well done and each one feels like a totally different vibe, but they like go so well together. And I think that that speaks a lot to, you know, in doing research and kind of just reading interviews and everything with Jarmusch, he talks so much about how much he likes the idea of not only repetition, but of like variation and kind of repeating the same things, but in slightly different ways. And, you know, we'll get into that with some of the other films too, obviously like Patterson and Broken Flowers do that a lot as well. And even Ghost Dog very prominently references Rashomon, which is, you know, the same story being told from different perspectives. And I think Mystery Train 
it's so fun to watch every time because each of these three different stories are told like it's all happening in the same place we get kind of the same like these same touchstones throughout the use of like blue moon occurs in each one the gunshot mm-hmm. happens you know in each one the uh hotel obviously is there in each one screaming jay hawkins and sink lee are in their stealing scenes in each one they're so good but each section feels like a totally different movie existing within the same universe in a weird way like the first section is kind of this like outsider you know almost like romanticizing yeah. uh, like a, a romanticizing of america but also still like a practicality kind of of like what america is the gunshot happens and you know she says was that a gunshot and he says of course it was you know this is america like it's it's romanticizing memphis and its place like in culture while still having this kind of like look at what America really is. But I think as like a traveler, you know, there's something really cool about how that first section sees it. And then the second section is really interesting too, because, you know, this woman is stuck there, you know, for the night, she's trying to bring her dead husband home. And it becomes this like really eerie kind of ghost story. You know, she goes into the diner and meets Tom Noonan's character, who is so creepy in the most like charming kind of way, like exactly what I love about Tom Noonan is that he is so creepy at times. Like he can just turn it on, you know, like mm-hmm. he can be really creepy, but also like really tender and sweet in like different movies. So like when he's first there, it's kind of like, oh, this guy's odd, but you know, he's also kind of charming. Like I I would love to have a conversation with this guy, but then she steps outside of, you know, the diner and him and his friend are trying to kind of like harass her. And like, clearly, you know, they have bad intentions and she's trying to get away. So she goes to the hotel and then you get into like the Elvis ghost aspect of it. So like it's, that section is a lot more kind of like eerie and odd. And it it's, a, you know, another section about like a traveler in a strange place and a different kind of vibe than the first section where it's not, you know, sweet and romanticizing the, you know, this different place a bit, it's more capturing what can be a little bit scary about, you know, being stuck in a strange place that you don't really understand. And then the third section is just like this wild, like cascading night of, you know, uh, bad bad circumstances with, you know, George Drummer and Steve Buscemi and like everything just keeps getting like worse and worse. And we just see the people who are like living there in Memphis and like what their experience is and their experience of Memphis is very different than everybody else's experience of Memphis. Cause that's just, you know, what's lived in for them. And it's like so chaotic and fun. And I think that that's, I guess it just kind of comes down to that idea of like the, the different elements really each one just feels like a different film, but they all feel so connected and the way that he weaves in everything is so well done, which makes mystery train really stand out for me, especially among anthology films, which obviously pretty soon after this was Pulp Fiction. And then after that, like the nineties American cinema was just overrun with anthology films. But this mm-hmm. one really, I think lasts a lot better than, you know, many of them. Yeah, this isn't four rooms to say another yeah, one. That was, yeah, exactly. that was maybe not the greatest anthology movie. But what I love about it is you could absolutely pull out any one of these sections and just watch it alone on its yeah. own and get something out of it. But together, they are going to have those same touchstones, like you said, with Blue Moon, which is like my favorite Elvis song, and probably after <laughs> Love Me. And so I love the way that it is used in there and just uh, the overlapping characters and themes. 
and how pieces of information are filtered through one and then are paid off in a weird way in like plot three or movie two. I also think it's interesting because it is Jarmish once again, kind of relishing in this outsider aspect, outsider in the United States, uh, whether that is a foreign visitor or somebody from just a different city. When he made this movie, he really didn't know Memphis all that much. This is a recurring thing where, you know, music is his gateway or movies or art or poetry, whatever it is, kind of just lures him to a subject like down by law. He'd never been to New Orleans and that kind of drew him in with the music. This is again, uh, the same situation with Memphis, you know, with Jarmish too. I mean, stranger than paradise, of course, is such a great movie night on earth. You have the cabs in all different cities, stranger than paradise. You have somebody who has lost touch with their, heritage and their family and is kind of embarrassed by the fact that they were from Hungary, I believe, or the, or the family was from there. And in um, the film over the course of it, like that's the character who's going to wind up going back to Hungary. They travel yeah. and there's something so unromantic and purposely so in Jarmusch. He's in love with these post-industrial landscapes and also filming them in unorthodox ways. Like you see, um, you know, Ohio in the winter, which is the yeah. most depressing thing ever. And it's in black and white. And then when we get down to Florida, there's nothing romantic about it. We're at like a crummy motel and yeah. it's run down and you get like the same little stretch of beach and, you know, somebody gets mugged right away. You see like the airport, but it's an airport parking lot. Yeah. It's yeah. Something that he does. This is not like the picture postcard. version of Memphis. And I respond to that. I also just think it's really cool that this movie kind of capitalized on those experiences he had in um, school. He had studied abroad in Paris and that's where he really got into movies at the Cinematheque was when he was over in France. And he said uh, they were films that were programmed by Henri Langlois and he would do really weird experiments where he would put on a Japanese movie, but with Italian um, (laughs) dubbing or something like that. And so you wouldn't be able to completely follow it or could you follow it based on sound or based on uh, the pictures, which might be why Jim Jarmusch hates dubbing, but we'll get into that. (laughs) But this is really cool because it shows him working with other languages And also uh, needing translators. He wrote all the dialogue for those characters in English, of course, and then worked with people who knew the language and the actors to make sure it was authentic. And this, again, is kind of a dry run for Night on Earth in that respect. But yeah, there's so much to get into with this one. It's a great film. Yeah, that idea of language is so interesting in his films in general. And that kind of that collaborative process when I was, you know, listening to him talking about the movie he mentioned that you know the the first section with the japanese couple is titled far from yokohama in the film and it was originally when he wrote it titled far from osaka because that's where he wanted the characters to be from because osaka he said is a very big kind of music you know city but when they were getting ready to make the film the two actors and the you know translator for the film said that osaka apparently has a very specific kind of dialect to it a very specific accent to it uh-huh. and rather than wanting the actors to have to 
work on speaking in that accent, he was like, well, we can just change it to Yokohama instead. So you don't have to worry about that. And yeah, it speaks a lot to kind of how important collaboration is to him. One thing and doing, you know, a lot of research um, on him, a thing that he keeps mentioning is like anytime people refer to something as like his film or like his work, he will always correct them and say, it's our film, you know, it's our yes. work. Like he, it's, it's interesting because one of the things that I love so much about Jarmish is this idea in my head of him being as a very singular kind of director. He has a very, you know, the idea of like auteur theory, you know, comes up a lot and like the discourse around the tour theory is annoying at this point on yeah. you know, from Twitter and everything. But he he's somebody who seems like he very much has a very particular aesthetic and like an idea of what a Jim Jarmusch film is. And he really, you know, rejects the marketplace and, you know, making his films for like mass audience. And it's almost fascinating that he's still able to make the films that he's able to make because he's never done like commercial stuff. But, mm -hmm. you know, even in today's landscape, he's able to still make stuff like for theaters and, you know, just keep making films that he wants to make the way that he wants to make them and have final cut on everything. Um, but and own the rights. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, and own all the rights to it. And like, but that idea, he like totally rejects that idea of like autorism because he says that it's so much a collaborative process. His films don't belong to him in any kind of way. They're all about the collaboration and so much of him making films is choosing his collaborators, you know, wisely. And I think that that, you know, shows from the very beginning, but definitely, you know, as his films go on, because they do morph in such interesting ways with like who his collaborators are. He works a lot with the same people, but then mm -hmm. like will shift and you can feel when he like shifts editors, you know, at a certain point, only love of left alive. He had a different editor than he had ever had before. And then he kept working with that same editor after that. And you can feel these kind of like subtle shifts in the way that his movies are, you know, even in the four that we're doing today, two of them were shot by Robbie Mueller and then two mm -hmm. were shot by Frederick Elms. And they have different like kind of feels to them because of that. And I just love, I love that idea of, you know, going into looking at like Jarmusch thinking that it's like, this is, you know, a guy who is in total control of like what he's making and like, it's his vision and like almost maybe that like dictatorial kind of like director, which even he's acknowledged that, especially in the editing room in his earlier years, he was a little bit more uh, stern and, you know, wanted a lot more control. And now he's, even though he's in the editing room every day, still on his newer films, he's a little bit more relaxed and a little bit more open to like collaboration. Um, but he still definitely wants to have his hand in like everything that happens with his films. But just that idea that like he, he always mentions like that the film's, of his are referenced as a film by Jim Jarmusch and like the credits and everything, but that's not him taking ownership of them. It's really just him saying that like, that's how he, his films are so much about picking his collaborators. So a film by Jim Jarmusch really means a film chosen by Jim Jarmusch to work with all these different people. And I think that you definitely feel that even a mystery train within the different kind of, you know, feelings of each of these three sections, because they feel like such different things. Yeah, it really takes a community. It takes a village when you make one of yeah. these films. And he writes these uh, roles for specific people. He works with musicians a lot. One of the things I love, and I think it makes his movies so unique and so energetic, is he blends newcomers, like uh, yeah. musicians especially. He loves working with musicians and comedians, but then blending them with people who've been around before in the world of films and real veteran actors. And I think the blend of that helps because if you have two newcomers 
in a scene together, it might have one energy. And if you put them, they might bounce off each other. Like yeah. you have Forrest Whitaker in a scene with someone who hasn't really been in a movie before. There's a different energy there. And this movie is like that. I also think Mystery Train also, and exactly for the reasons that you were saying, probably owes a lot to the people that influenced him, his mentors like Nicholas Ray, and especially Ben Vendors, who worked with Robbie Mueller, because those were collaborative sets, basically. Yeah. Like, you know, there's that stamp of this is a Nick Ray film. I mean, you're not yeah. going <laughs> to... Only he makes a film that looks a certain way and you know a Vendors movie when you see it. And yeah. uh, Jarmish has really kind of taken on that vendor, like taken the baton of, <laughs> of road movies and travel movies, yeah. but then taken it in his own direction, which I love. And I think that Mystery Train is a good blend of those uh, elements and people that influenced him. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The the idea of influence is so huge. You can tell in him because like you listen to interviews or read interviews and he's just like, will have this like encyclopedic knowledge of like everybody he's ever like, you know, seen a film by or read a yes. poem by or like anything. He's just like citing names. He'll cite like the, you know, the specific scene in a specific film that he saw, you know, 20 years ago or something. And yeah, especially the idea of, you know, what you were talking about where, you know, when he was going abroad, when he was like a teenager and, you know, in his earlier years and kind of bringing back all of these different influences. And, you know, I, I heard him talking about, um, going to Japan when he was younger and picking up films by these Japanese directors yes. that he loved that you couldn't get anywhere else, like Ozu and Mizuguchi and everything, and then bringing them back, you know, on tape and watching them here, you know, in the States, but they didn't have subtitles on yep. them. So he would just watch them in Japanese with no subtitles. And that would give him an understanding kind of of what like the feel of them is and, you know, what like the language of not having language is. And I think that that's very much something that you feel in all of his films is somebody who is drawing from these different places and not so focused on dialogue as much as he is, you know, just the feeling of these people interacting with each other and what we can kind of get from that from osmosis, even if you don't necessarily like, well, for him, he didn't necessarily understand the plot of those Japanese films to like a T when he was watching them, but he still understood what they were saying and what they were supposed to be making him feel. Yes. You need the pictures and the tone of the voice, the sound. And yeah. that is, again, why he is uh, anti-dubbing, because he yeah. wants you to be able to take all of these elements in. It's a really good film school uh, little experiment that you can yeah. do is watching a movie with the sound off or watching a film and putting it in a different language. Now with DVD and Blu-ray, you can totally yeah. do this or turn off subtitles. And it is really cool, especially a film maybe that you haven't seen in years or you've never seen before to see what you can pick up and do you understand enough of the story or the emotion or the the strong beats of what somebody is trying to get across just by the sound of their voice or the music that's played and yeah. i love that about jarmish this movie does see him starting to loosen up a little bit on his static camera not mm -hmm. totally <laughs> like we're still across the street it's still uh, very i mean it's in color as i mentioned in the introduction to it which is but he was very uh, careful about the use of red and wear and making sure that orange wasn't used or yeah. like orange and yellow were the colors that were a little taboo he wanted to yeah. not use those the bright colors for certain uh, reasons, 
but he did use shots that came right out of Ozu, like, you know, um, where the characters are, especially in that first section of the film, mm-hmm. like no higher than the bed. I believe they had to be like shot from down mm-hmm. or far away. Like he was using the film language that he learned probably on those tapes that he brought back essentially. And what he maybe either unconsciously or consciously uh, took from those. But this is also because it's Mueller instead of uh, Tom DeCillo, you're getting um, a little bit more expressionism in the photography. And I think it's it's a good blend of that. Yeah. Yeah. I Robbie Mueller is probably my favorite cinematographer ever. I recently rewatched Paris, Texas for the yes, first time in too. like a few years. And that, I mean, that may be my favorite like shot movie, like of all time. Gorgeous. And he, yeah, there's, there's really something. And maybe, I mean, maybe that's part of why mystery train might be, you know, if it's not the only film shot by Jarmusch, but it has like those like reds and those greens, those like, mm-hmm. you know, those really just like Robin ambient Mueller greens. greens. Yeah. yeah. That like is something that I'll never get sick of seeing you know that that kind of green (laughs) yeah i know it's so specific to that one cinematographer too like yeah and repo man and some of the other ones yes yeah yeah repo man's a really good one too and yeah the the use of red especially with like the the characters and like the costumes you know yuki kudo has the the leather jacket with you know the red on the back of it and then obviously screaming jay hawkins suit that he's wearing is like that is absolutely iconic that red suit i love it Mm -hmm. so much yeah no absolutely and it's just such a good one too because it shows his love for the people he'd already worked with because he had, yeah. he brought in uh nicoletta broski again speaking of foreign languages one of my favorite stories uh that jarmish has told is when he first met roberto benini they were on a jury together uh, i can't remember if it was france or italy but it was overseas they were on a jury they were both bored by whatever they were supposed to be doing or watching and went to the alley to go smoke cigarettes neither one spoke the other one's language or i think they could talk in broken french a little bit <laughs> was, was the phrase i believe that jarmish used so we're going to see that in our next movie of, of people becoming friends even though they don't speak the language but yeah. yes this is such a good celebration of that and his love for all of these people that he's met yeah, I was listening to this Q&A on um, the Criterion Blu-ray of Mystery Train where uh, Jim Jarmusch movies on Criterion are very interesting because he's very anti like director's commentary because he doesn't he watch doesn't his like movies. Watch. Yeah, he doesn't watch his movies at all. So he the on the Criterions of his movies, they'll have these Q&As with Jim where it's just like a static, like it's just a shot of, you know, a background or whatever. <laughs> And it's just him answering questions that were submitted by, you know, fans who wanted him to answer the questions. And they're, they're like over an hour long on each one. And they're so interesting. um, And they're so fun to listen to. And on the mystery train one, somebody asked him if, um, Roberto Benigni was the guy in the uh, the casket in that section because Nicoletta oh, no. Brocky was yeah. her, uh, his wife. And he was just like, oh God, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to think of him dead. I think I yeah, remember exactly. that one from when I watched. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that... <laughs> Screaming Jay Hawkins in the film that I didn't know like any of this. Obviously, Screaming Jay Hawkins is very prominent in Stranger Than Paradise, not yes. as you know a physical presence, but just his you know music. Um, I put a spell on you is you yes. know very uh, heavily used in Stranger Than Paradise, and um, 
<laughs> and on the uh, the Mystery Train Q&A on the Criterion, he talks about how Screaming Jay Hawkins got involved in Mystery Train, which was that he, Jarmusch realized after Stranger in the Paradise came out that Screaming Jay Hawkins didn't get like any of the money. They obviously paid to use I Put a Spell on You wow. in Paradise, but Screaming Jay Hawkins didn't get any of the money because he just didn't have the rights to it at that point. And so when that movie made enough money, Jarmich like seeked out Screaming Jay Hawkins to give him, you know, the money that he deserved for it. And he found him like living in like a trailer, not, you know, living in like the best conditions. And they just became really good friends. You know, he gave him the money for, you know, using the song and they just became really good friends. And then he got him in the movie and he just like tells these absolutely wild stories about Screaming Jay Hawkins where like, he would be, you know, Screaming Jay would be like calling him like before shooting, like, you know, before they went to start shooting the movie and asking him like if he, if Jim wanted him to bring uh, Henry, which is, you know, Screaming Jay Hawkins fans know is like this like skull on a stick that mm. Screaming Jay Hawkins would use like in his act and stuff. And he would be asking Jim Jarmusch if he wanted to bring Henry to the set. And Jim would be like, I don't know, man, like whatever you want, like it's fine. <laughs> like, he probably, Henry probably won't be in the movie, but like, if you want to bring him, bring him. Yeah. And Screaming Jay Hawkins would be like, oh no, I won't bring him. I won't bring him. And then the next day he would call and be like, hey, I'm going to bring him. I'm going to bring, I'm going to bring oh, Henry. Oh, that's so cute. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And there was this one day, this one, the my favorite story that I think he told was um, this one day on set, it was like raining, like really bad. And they couldn't shoot because like they couldn't have rain in the shot for whatever that particular, you know, day was. And it was like raining so bad. And they were just standing around on set, like waiting for it to stop raining. And Screaming Jay Hawkins went up to him and just said, Jim, do you want me to throw the bones? And Jim Jarmusch was like, what do you mean? And Screaming Jay Hawkins pulled out bones from his pocket and just like threw them on the street to like make it stop raining. And like soon after that, it stopped raining. Oh my God. And like it just worked. But then they just had bones all over the street. So like the crew had to come and like sweep up all these bones off the street <laughs> so that they could start shooting the movie. Good thing he brought Henry and the bones as well. And the saying. bones. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. No, I love that he is open to whatever they want to do. Like with Joe Strummer was very nervous. He was at the time, I guess, going through, I read like a depression. Um, and so he was also just extremely worried about staying in character or not being able to get it back because it was an alien skill set for him, you know, being a musician, yeah. even though he'd been Joe Strummer, a front man, and that's kind of a persona you put on. Uh, they said like he would just kind of stay off to the side, smoke cigarettes and just wait until Jim called him and come right on. And so he worked with everyone differently, which is what you have to do. I think uh, Nicholas Ray gave him that advice, which is if a director tells you there's one way to direct all actors, like he's a fucking idiot. And yeah. yeah Sorry, David Fincher. Yeah. <laughs> I know. They're all different. <laughs> They're all beautiful and unique snowflakes. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> For the guy who said we were not a beautiful and unique snowflake. David yeah, Fincher. exactly. Yes. yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Next up, we jump ahead exactly 10 years to talk about 1999's underrated ghost dog, The Way of the Samurai, which, like the nihilistic, absurdist Western dead man before it, saw Jarmish experimenting within the characters, confines, and storytelling constructs of genre, this time through the lens of a gangster movie, but, you know, Jarmish style a hybrid of crime films of the West and the Samurai Code of the East. Ghost Dog sought inspiration in Melville's film, Le Samurai, Seijun Suzuki's movie, Branded to Kill, and Yamamoto Tsutomo's book, Hagakure, 
which Jarmusch quotes throughout this unusual tale of a hitman played by Forrest Whitaker, who lives a quiet life of reading and meditation, when that is, he isn't a button man for the mob. But when he finds himself in a mess and gets a target on his back, everything comes to a head. Famous for its score by Riza, who also has a brief cameo and anchored by the empathetic Whitaker in a strong yet understated turn and study of contrasts as Jarmusch intentionally wanted to use his physicality to impose. It's a curiously fascinating, intentionally weird little movie that I'm glad you gave me the opportunity to rewatch. So what are your thoughts on Ghost Dog? Yeah, I was super excited about rewatching it too. I've always been a fan of it, but it's one of those movies that I think I love more every single time that I watch it. And this time watching it, I, yeah, I loved it even more than like I ever have before. And you mentioned, you referred to it as a study in contrast. And I think that that's exactly, you know, what is so interesting about it is that, you know, it has so many of these different kind of contradictions throughout it, you know, whether it's taking, you know, speaking of him drawing from influences, obviously there's like a mob movie elements, but also like samurai movie elements, mm-hmm. and then also noir and, you know, the Melville's kind of, you know, noir and samurai, obviously with samurai and, and then like Forrest Whitaker, you know, being this very big, like intimidating physical presence, but he's so gentle in it yeah, and he's so tender. And that's something that, I think Forrest Whitaker, you know, in other films too, you see him utilizing that as well, but he's, he's somebody who can really ham it up um, when the opportunity is appropriate, but here he's just so tender and it's like such like a lovely performance. And then you kind of get like the, the mob movie, especially at this time, like, you know, it's still the decade of Goodfellas and, you know, we're coming off of that, like Casino, you know, a few years before this, where like mob movies are very cool and very in. And the mm-hmm. mobsters in this movie are just absolute idiots, like yes. total dumbasses, like tripping over their feet. They haven't paid the rent of like the places like their headquarters. They haven't paid the rent in like three months. Like it's it's such a movie of contradictions in so many different ways. He utilizes the I mean, from the samurai, but also like Birdman of Alcatraz, the, the pigeons and like, you know, the kind of gentle person that is seen as like a, a fearful person to the other people around them. But in that relationship with the birds, you know, we see that they're they have this like soft, like caring side. And it really is just about that code for him. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's really just such like a fun movie to watch. And it's so funny, too, which you wouldn't expect from the title or even like kind of the opening of it, this movie about, you know, this like inner city samurai in the nineties. Um, it's just, it's really funny to watch it. Even from the structure, the kind of contradictions are really there too. It really has this like elliptical kind of structure, which utilizes a lot. And that kind of like jazz flow. It's, it's a really like fun one to watch. I think. It really is. It kind of uses to use a phrase that our beloved Willem Dafoe used when he was <laughs> talking about working with Catherine Bigelow and Monty Montgomery on The Loveless. He said it used actors as iconography or people mm. as iconography. And that's basically he's using symbols here or he's using people as icons, essentially. And this goes to uh, his these characters are in no way real mob type people that you would encounter in real life <laughs> even though Jarmish, when he tells stories he, he lived uh, or and worked I believe 
right across the street from like the Gambino crime yeah. uh, family. He would see, you know, like Sammy the Bull and John Gotti <laughs> walking around. And uh, I think he told a story about somebody he was working with actually got into like a shouting match with one of them and was mm. trying to warn them off. Like, do you know who you're talking to? And mm. he didn't really put it together. And then he's like, Oh my God, like, what was I, but you know, <laughs> this guy is apparently still alive, knock on wood, but uh, in no way are these characters like that. They are, you know, mob movie characters more than yeah. real life uh, figures and you know you're using also elements of black exploitation samurai it's a strange mix i remember the first time i watched it i didn't really like it much like i couldn't wrap mm -hmm. my head around it very well but it was a funny thing because this came after dead man and for a little bit there i was like wait a second like am i just losing it for jarmish or what is mm -hmm. going on but i kept thinking about this one and not so much dead man. And I think a mm -hmm. lot of that has to do with Forrest Whitaker, who is just such a mesmerizing figure. One of the first actors whose name and faces, like I remember learning, uh, I watched Platoon when I was super young. <laughs> I was supposed to sit in the other room and like color with my brother while my dad and uncle watched it in the living room. <laughs> and we just kept running in. And so I was behind the couch and then I just watched the whole thing and he just gave up and let us. Yeah. And for whatever reason, I got into Platoon. And so from then on, it was like, well, this is Willem Dafoe from Platoon, and this is Forrest yeah. Whitaker. And I love Forrest. He was in another one of my favorite films from uh, this era, which is Smoke. Mm, yeah, which great is movie. Such a good movie. I think Jarmish might have been in Blue in the Face, if I remember right, which is like the sequel to this. Mm. Uh, but anyway, back to uh, Forrest Whitaker in Smoke it kind of uses that strong yet that soft side of him as yeah. well. And I love that he found a good way to use forest here in an unexpected um, milieu. And it's a quiet role. He yeah. does more of his speaking when he's like quoting these passages yeah. from Hagakure. And also this came right after Ronin, which was the movie with De Niro uh, mm. that Mamet wrote, which, you know, has a couple like, lip service discussions <laughs> about uh samurai code and ronin yeah, not as much as you would think no not as much as you would think going into the movie <laughs> called ronin essentially yeah. uh but you know this would make a weird double feature so i don't know what was going on or what was in the ethos there yeah. for a few years but i guess we were into the east and the west yeah yeah you're and you're right now you're making your way through the shield still right I just started it and I got to say, like, I've already run this by the, my friend, Jordan Harper, who's like, that is the reason he became a TV writer. I'm like, mm -hmm. buddy, does it get better? <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, it was not what I was expecting. I grew up loving like homicide life on the street. Yeah. And so I started watching season one and it's kind of that post uh, ER plotting where there's a different thing happening every 45 seconds. Yeah. And so, but from what I understand, it does get better. Jed Ayers, my other friend, assured me, like, no, season two, it's like light years. I'm like, yeah. okay, okay. So, yeah, see, season two, it definitely picks up and it becomes more serialized. It's one of those okay, shows, good. kind of like Justified. If you've seen Justified, it starts oh, off like one very of my favorites. Yeah. Yeah. So, Justified also starts off very like episodic and then slowly becomes more serialized. And yes. 
Forrest Whitaker comes into the shield and the fifth season and the fifth season of the shield Ooh. is basically just Forrest Whitaker versus Vic Mackey, you know, Michael Chiklis's character. They're just like, oh, fuck, I need to stay tuned. Yeah. yeah. It's the fifth season of the shield is like one of the best seasons of okay. television, but yeah, it's, I, I can definitely see that it's uh, a, a television series that if you're not aware of like what you're getting into when you start watching it and you think that it's like going to be one of those kind of nineties cop shows, like it's very different, but yeah, force with, and like the shield, obviously in last King of Scotland, which like might've been my introduction to Forrest oh, Whitaker. Okay. Sure, like it's, that. he's very, very big, you know, yes. very big in like those kind of performances. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, people are really capitalizing on, that kind of physical presence that he has. But yeah, in movies like Smoke and movies like this and even like The Crying Game for like one of his earlier ones, he really has a softness to him that is just like so beautiful. And I love, you know, doing the research, finding out that Jarmish met Forrest Whitaker in like the valley at this shop where they developed Super 8, you know, film and Jarmish like went there all the time to get, you know, film developed that, you know, he was using. And he just, when he was leaving the shop one day, Forrest Whitaker was just coming in to get mm-hmm. some of his film developed and they just you know started chatting and Forrest Whitaker was like you know let me know if there's ever anything that you know you'd be interested in me oh, for wow. and so Jarmish like you know as you said about Miss when we were talking about Mystery Train he wrote the film specifically for Forrest Whitaker as he often does he writes you know his films for specific yeah. actors and he said that you know if Forrest Whitaker didn't want to do it he just wasn't going to do it and That's you can tell that it feels it feels totally you know like this movie rests on Forrest Whitaker in so many ways. It's, it feels so, you know, um, Taylor defined. made. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Taylor made Taylor made exactly. And like in the same way, Rizzo's music is very much, you know, so specific to this movie. And it's such like, it's, it's that complete vibe. There's a reason that Jarmish, I think regularly works with, you know, even if it's not somebody who's composing the music specifically for the movie, he'll like grab certain tracks or certain artists and really, you know, define a movie by that mm-hmm. specific musician or, you know, just somebody composing it too. And like Rizzo composed the, the music for this, but it is kind of that idea of finding a particular person that he wants to collaborate with and making that a collaboration. And I think Rizzo's music is, you know, as much a part of this as anything else. And he, speaking of, you know, rights and everything in order to get Riza's like music in the movie, he ended up making sure that Riza gets, got to keep the rights for the music. So Jim Jarmusch yes. like, doesn't have the rights for the music mm-hmm. and the, the soundtrack for it is like notoriously or was notoriously very hard to find for mm-hmm. like a long time. And people were like looking for it like everywhere. And there was like a Japanese print of it like somewhere, <laughs> but you couldn't get it like anywhere else. But yeah, it's, it's definitely a movie that speaks to how important collaborators are for Jarmish in like every step of the whole process, I think. It really does. And it goes to loyalty, which is um, kind of a recurring theme. Yeah. Yeah, because that is uh, the beginning and the end, essentially, with the the Ronin code or the samurai code that uh, yeah. this character lives by. And um, yeah, which is very tragic. I read an interesting take by Roger Ebert when he was reviewing this. Mm. And he actually really liked this one. He was pointing out that he almost wondered if it would make more sense if you thought the Forrest Whitaker character was a little bit crazy or, um, yeah. Right. Um, and somebody who is 
you know, existential or, or finding their own sort of meaning because he was so passionless that it seemed like somebody who was, um, I mean, to put it more pr- appropriately, of course, a, a mentally ill. I, I don't think that's the way it was put in in this uh, review. Right. But, yeah. <laughs> but it was, but it was very funny. He was just basically pointing out that this is somebody who has these, uh, you know, beliefs about this code that he lives by, and it's yeah. so foreign. But it's also just doesn't really adhere to, I mean, this is somebody who kills people. I mean, he's taking a samurai code, but also uh, finding that in there. I also think it's uh, a weird blend of just some of the elements that uh, Jarmish found inspiration in in his own life, like in animation. He tells stories about being in Ohio and seeing like experimental uh, kind of like softcore or adult uh, animation when he was like a teenager or a kid <laughs> on the weekend, they would play all kinds of things at this uh, porn house and mm. um, also just loving animation and animation, not softcore in the film, but is used throughout the movie. And yeah. also just his love of literature, Rashomon, somebody who, as you pointed out, uh, we have a story that is told from different perspectives, multiple ways. You have multiple people taking in the situation and getting pieces of the puzzle, kind of like with Mystery yeah. Chain, but maybe not the whole thing. You also have uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which is an interesting <laughs> um, element when you think of the Forrest Whitaker character being used for their physicality right, a little yeah. bit, like a, and also maybe used as um, by a, a puppet master, possibly. Yeah. That might be one implication, and his friends want him to um, take responsibility and break out of this idea of what he owes somebody for saving his life. Yeah. yeah. Or what do you think? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, and you you mentioned when we were talking about mystery train to the idea of language and, you know, you know, you um, uh, were referencing, you know, that the relationship between Forrest Whitaker and Isaac de Bancole's character and this who plays like the ice cream man and the two of them don't speak the same language. He doesn't speak any English, yeah. but we see throughout the film that, you know, them they have these interactions with these conversations with each other and they know that they don't understand what the other person's saying, but then they'll like their next, the other person's like one person will say one thing. And then the other person's dialogue will be like almost the exact same thing. So they clearly just like intuitively understand each other. Yeah. It's just like this, the, the relationship between the two of them is so beautiful and speaks so much to, you know, Jarmish's understanding of language and how, not important spoken language is with the relationships. And that was something that I don't even think really stood out to me as much. Like the first few times that I saw the movie, like when I was younger, I think maybe I just thought it was like funny in like a peculiar kind of way, like, you know, this odd little detail that he put in there. But then like this time I really, really connected with that. Um, And something else that, you know, I found really fun and funny, which like, I think that I forgot was in this, that scene where they're on the roof and they see on the other, like he, brings him up to the roof to show him this thing. And we don't know what it's going to be. And then on the other roof is this guy who's just on his roof, building this boat. And yes. like, it's like the weirdest thing. I totally the forgot strangest. that that was in the movie. Yeah. But then when I, um, just doing research, I think it might've been on the, the criterion Q and a thing for, for ghost dog. Jarmish mentioned that that was based on a real thing that happened to him when he was like younger, that him and like his friend saw, you know, a guy on a roof building like a boat like that. And they like screamed out to him, like, what are you doing? And the guy just like 
turned around and like screamed something in like a different language like back to them and just gave them like a thumbs up or like a wave or like whatever and that was just kind of like the end of it it was just like this odd thing that happened which i think is something that occurs in a lot of dramish movies these like odd little things that you know don't necessarily have any kind of you know connection with the plot or anything like that but they're like these details that he just loves to put in because he's he just loves detail you know he and, does yeah he's fascinated by humanity and the weirdness yeah. of people uh he has said that he's seen a million strange things in new york <laughs> yeah. but also it's people building castles in the air or you know finding yeah. their own way through life or their own uh sense of meaning or what brings them beauty and joy and yeah. for this man it is building a boat it's like it's almost like a June character and Amelie for yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're like waiting for Amelie to go over there and get the story as to why yeah. he's building the boat, but that never happens, which is just really cool. Yeah. So you're just left to one wonder what's going on, just like we do in everyday life when you see somebody interesting and yeah, and kind of want to know what their story is. But the fact that you don't know is just really such a delight and part of what makes us all human and so fascinating, I think. Yeah, it's totally fitting for Jarmish too, because he's talked a lot about how he really doesn't like backstory. Like in writing, yes. his movies, he really rejects backstory and Ghost Dog almost in a way has more backstory than anything else, because we at least get like the flashback of seeing, you know, Ghost Dog being attacked and the mobster Louie, like, you know, saves his life. And then that's why he feels like he owes him. But other than that, yeah, like he said, like we don't get an understanding really of why he feels like he has to follow this code specifically and why you know he he is stuck in that like maybe maybe there's something mental health related maybe not you know we just don't get that kind of you know understanding so it's really up to us to you know build our interpretation if we want to even build the interpretation because it's so much about living in like kind of the present moment which is yeah really really lovely it really is. And I also really appreciate it in this era of uh, Luc Besson's The Professional with a, a hitman <laughs> and a little girl. Like there was nothing creepy about this <laughs> yeah. relationship with uh, Forrest Whitaker's character and this young girl who loves to read. I mean, it is a little weird that they're in the park and, you know, this grown man is sitting next to this girl and they're like having a very heart, a big heart to heart. And from afar, yeah. I think if I was this girl's, you know, caretaker, I would have been booking it over there yes. to make sure. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what is going on here? But I love that. I mean, you know that this is somebody you can trust. There isn't sort of this romantic element that we saw in The Professional. And I'm not knocking The Professional as a film. I love that film. But, you know, it's creepy. And yeah. so it's a hard one to go back and revisit. But, yeah, knowing uh, what we know now about, yeah, about the director. Yeah. And, uh, uh, yes, and also what Natalie Portman went through. So anyway, yeah. it's, it's just kind of a, a cool way to go out of the 90s with, you know, a different appreciation. Uh, Jarmish is somebody who really loves female characters and has always said that the women in his movies are like more soulful or have more of the answers. Uh, and he's just more fascinated by the women. And even this little girl, you you sense that. I also like that you have a boss's daughter and it is a little like, you know, it's, I think it's purposely cheesy or a little bit like uh, <laughs> a black exploitation or like a, a play on a, maybe a B noir movie from the forties. Mm. Like, you know, he shows up to the house and of course, just like in a movie, when you turn on the TV and the story you need to see is right there, he turns on his little walkie talkie <laughs> or whatever. And he overhears yeah. them giving this lecture about you get involved with the boss's daughter and you think she's going to be this total harlot 
or there's going to be like a scene where she comes on to Forrest Whitaker or something and it goes completely against your expectations. So yeah. just like with the little girl, I love that. Even if uh, part of me was kind of hoping they would develop her character a little bit beyond just liking the Rashomon. Uh, book. Yeah. 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 That's yeah. That's definitely one where you, you expect like a little bit more to happen with the character and then yeah. it, it doesn't, which is an interesting kind of like anti-climax. And I thought, True. you know, the, the structure of the movie is really interesting because, you know, we get to this scene where um, Ghost Dog kind of goes to this like big estate where a lot of the mobsters are hanging out and we kind of expect that to be, you know, the big action climax. And it really is just kind of like, it's almost clinical, but then he goes the scene, the moment where he goes into the one room and the guy, you know, one of the guys stands up and he says like, it's the fucking bird guy. And then he just has like a heart attack <laughs> and dies before Ghost yes. Dog can even shoot him or anything. Like it's very... He, he built a lot of like bait and switch kind of stuff into his movies that are like really fun. And even, you know, you mentioned Seijin Suzuki and Branded to Kill, you know, in, as kind of a very specific touchstone for the movie. Yep. And one of the things that was really funny that I found out, you know, in doing the research for it was um, that Jarmish met Suzuki like after the movie was done. And, you know, they, you know, hung out and like had dinner and everything and like talked. And Suzuki really liked the movie. But his one complaint with it was the that ending. the ending, yeah, the ending, he did not think that it was appropriate to end a samurai movie with a samurai dying and mm -hmm. you know the way that he died and was just very upset about it yes yeah I thought that was really funny god I would have been a love to have been a fly on the wall at that yeah, dinner right. to see what that exchange was like you know yeah. you got him probably going you know that's not the samurai code or he should have fought yeah and probably have Jarmish going but that's the point yeah or, exactly you know, kind of like exactly. the that's thought kind of the bubbles that you can imagine yeah. uh going on in these two great filmmakers minds as they shared a, a meal and a conversation would have been really fascinating yeah there's there's so much to this one I think it's so unusual the music is great I also love that you know it starts out basically like Le Samurai opens yeah. uh you know in Le Samurai which <laughs> cracks me up you have the scene where Elaine Delon is needing to get in the car and he's got this giant <laughs> ring of yeah. keys he has to like try every key and luckily we've come a long way with our technology which <laughs> Forrest Whitaker is able to do but yeah, again, just like with his Ozu um, illusions in, in earlier films and several movies and filmmakers that have inspired him, yeah. it's kind of a cool little blend of all of these um, influences and also maybe some of that absurdism with the guy having the heart attack came yeah. right from just <laughs> making Dead Man. Yeah, 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 definitely. Gary yeah. Farmer being in this and having yes. like a similarly kind of, you know, stupid fucking white men kind of yes. thing, which is really fun, which he said that he just really wanted to work. Somebody like asked him if it was the same character as, ah, you know, oh, nobody in Dead Man. And he was like, yeah, I don't know. I guess it can be if you want it to be. I just really, you know, I felt really bad about nobody's end in Dead Man. So I was like, you know, yeah, like I just wanted to work with Gary Farmer. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm glad he did. Yeah. Yes. Well, next up, we have a film I actually hosted a screening and lecture on way back in the late aughts when I couldn't get the rights to program Stranger Than Paradise, probably because they belong <laughs> to Jim Jarmusch. No, it's the 2005 movie Broken Flowers starring Bill Murray and a murderer's row of talented folks like Jeffrey Wright, Julie Delpy, Sharon Stone, Chloe Savigny, Jessica Lange, Francis Conroy and Tilda Swinton centered on an aging Don Juan who, having earned 
a good living in computers is still enjoying bachelor life when his younger girlfriend announces she needs space. Don Johnston, that's right, Johnston with a T, <laughs> not Don Johnson, is startled after he receives an anonymous letter in red ink on pink paper from an old lover telling him that 20 years earlier he became a father without his knowledge warning him that their son is likely on his way to meet him. Bill Murray's Don doesn't wait to find out and instead takes the advice of his friend, mystery lover Winston, played by Wright, to go on a quest to track down his old loves one by one and see who sent the letter, what exactly is going on, and if perhaps he should try to face up to past shortcomings and or make things right. Alternating in tone from spirited and breezy to melancholic and soulful and daring to leave us in suspense about an awful lot. Let's get into Broken Flowers. So what's your take on this one? Yeah, I I love Broken Flowers so much. I think when I initially came to it, I came to it with um, a kind of expectation of it that Jarmusch has expressed being very upset that people kind of naturally would have an expectation of because it came out you know, two years after Lost in Translation, which he said that he wrote Broken Flowers before Lost in Translation came oh, really? out okay. and like wanted Bill Murray for it and everything. But then Lost in Translation came out and then he just like knew that people were going to go into it thinking that it was basically going to be like Lost in Translation meets Sideways because of the, you know, like, yes. road element of it and everything. And so I had a very different expectation for it going into it than what it was. But almost immediately I was like, okay, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. Also, I absolutely love this like the music from the the opening with you know the song music the song and like the the montage going like tracking the letter going through was like so just like fun and like bouncy and then yeah as you said like it starts kind of like spritey like bouncy you know very like fun and then slowly it becomes more melancholic and we like get into kind of the the reasons why he would even go on, you know, this journey when at first it seems like he's really only going on it to appease Jeffrey Wright's character because he's being so annoying about it and, you know, booking him these plane trips without, you know, even consulting him really about it or anything and just being like, you're going to go, no, 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 you're going to go. It's going to be fine. You're going to (laughs) go. And, but like, we, we get that understanding of why he would, because he's this guy who just feels this like hole like in his life and doesn't, have really a sense of purpose and like that is such it's such a cliche you know the the middle-aged man regretting you know his life because he's lonely now or whatever but Jarmish finds ways to make it feel like brand new and very interesting and you know relatable I think in a lot of ways it's it's not necessarily an anthology movie it's really like an episodic movie but each section of the the film with each you know different past lover feels like its own different kind of movie. Mm-hmm. And through each one, we get to kind of see almost these like reflections of what Don could have been and the different ways that, you know, people might be unhappy or people might be happy. Like he goes into it and it almost feels like he f- feels out of place at each of these places, but it's more because he's out of place at them, not necessarily because they're like out of place within their own environments. Like you don't get the impression that they're necessarily unhappy, especially with like Sharon Stone's character. You know, you go in and you kind of get this impression that like, oh, this seems like a little bit odd, like a little off. She seems like, you know, maybe she's kind of sad. But then like when she goes, when he goes to leave the next morning, she just seems so content with the fact that they had 
you know, one night together and, you know, she yeah. got to reunite with a lover and, you know, have, you know, intercourse with each other and just have like a really sweet night. And she, you know, says, you know, hit me up again if you want to, but like, she's not, you know, cloying at him, trying to like get him to stay or like anything else, like you might like expect it to be. And I feel like you get that a lot with kind of each section, like these women who, you know, like I think myself, um, don't necessarily want, um, a former lover just showing up on your doorstep, no. uh, especially with like Jessica Lang and Tilda Swinton's characters who are just like, not super enthused about him not being there. And I'm like, oh yeah, I guess I won't go visit, you know, my, my ex from 20 years ago. Maybe that's a bad idea to just show up randomly with some pink flowers and be like, Hey, do you have a typewriter? <laughs> Yeah, don't do that. No, yeah. as soon as you said that, I just started thinking like, good God, that's why I have a business address, people. People don't know where I live, essentially. No, I'm just kidding. But no, I, I also love uh, the symbolism. Again, you have a filmmaker who likes to use symbols and do so in an interesting way. And also with people as iconography. Uh, with Sharon Stone, the first character that we meet, she organizes people's closets yeah. and houses and putting houses in order. And then the next one, Frances Conroy, like they're in real estate. And yeah. so again, and her house is extremely in order. <laughs> and it's almost like Goldilocks as he goes from one yeah. house to the mm -hmm. next, you know, like how he could have fit in and how these people have changed. I loved the Frances Conroy house so much because his name is Don and she's with this guy, Ron. So it's yeah. almost an inversion <laughs> of like what he could have maybe ended yeah. up being which is very funny. And uh, also she's now far more conservative. You get the sense that she was kind of a hippie back then. And yeah. he's making these judgments about their happiness. And as you astutely pointed out, you know, these are just his outward judgments on these yeah. people that might not actually reflect what's going on in their own mental state uh, as uh, he sees, especially in the, the, scenes with uh jessica lang who is completely moved on and she is somebody who works as like an animal psychic uh, or, or a animal communicator uh, animal, animal communicator. yeah get it right jen animal <laughs> communicator yeah i would have been just kicked out of the office when i said animal psychic even scottsdale we have psychics like everywhere here mm. it's kind of like crystals and the gems and it's strange yeah. yes so she is an animal communicator and you have uh, an, another home with the, the Tilda Swinton character from the outside, you make your own judgment. And then you start yeah. wondering why you're making that exactly. judgment because of the, maybe the economic differences between them. Uh, these are people who are poorer than obviously our well-to-do main character. Yeah. But what I love so much is when he sees Tilda Swinton and she's very brassy and the men in her family come over to like, see what's going on. And he does get punched, but before he gets <laughs> punched, it isn't a confrontation. Like you would expect, you know, usually you would think like with these guys and the motorcycles and they're outside and they're very macho, like it's going to be sons of yeah. anarchy basically. And it's <laughs> yeah. not that at all. He says something like, you know, why are you here? That's not very sensitive of you. Yeah. And I, I love that line of dialogue so much because <laughs> it really does show you that, you know, don't make these judgments. And it's also not just to Don, but to the audience watching, which yeah. is what Jarmish does so well in all of his films is make you um, 
think that you're, you know, you're seeing the Joe Strummer character in Mystery Train and you think one thing and yeah. then, you know, he's ready to do something crazy because somebody insults his friend and is racist and it, it's, it, it is crazy, but, you know, it's a good way to play against expectations and you get that in this movie and it's really a sense of these women and they have moved on in life and why hasn't Dawn? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a really good way of putting it because they all seem totally content with what their lives are and he's very much not. And that's ultimately what, you know, the, the idea of it is. And then of course, like it ends with, you know, or before, like right before the end, his last kind of visit is to the one ex-lover who has passed away and it just ends with him sad. sad and alone at, you know, this grave. And that, you know, speaks so much to where he's at that's like the one where you know he goes through this whole process of going to all of them and he's not at place with any of them because they're totally content in their lives without him they don't you know really want this guy you know especially like increasingly so they don't want this guy you know showing up and being a part of their lives they're like what the hell are you even doing here like who cares and i love I love the like recurring use of, you know, kind of those motifs and like almost like red. I think in like my letterbox review, when I saw the movie, I referred to them as pink herrings because of like the pink flowers and like the pink typewriter and everything. And like, (laughs) thank you. I was, I was rereading like my letterbox reviews of the movies from when I first saw them while I was writing and I was like, oh, that was kind of, all right. I'm, I'm not, I'm not terrible at this. No. Um, But yeah, it's like, it's fun to watch them because we're playing the kind of mystery through it, you know, ourselves, there is like this like pulp kind of idea to it, especially with, you know, Winston, Jeffrey Wright's character is so like, he's obsessed with like, he gets on these like pulp, you know, mystery novel, like message boards. And like, that's like the hook for him is wanting to just like have Don go on this mystery that he can experience like vicariously because he has, you know, a very full family. family. He can't go do it himself. And there is like this element where we're trying to obviously as the audience figure out, you know, the mystery, even though we kind of know that he's going to go to each one. So like, you know, but we're, we're trying to, you know, figure out these clues just the same way that Don is of, you know, who, who could be the mother and ultimately like any of them could be. And I thought that yeah. it was really cool that um I read this thing that Jarmish said that when he cast that, first of all, he really wanted to make the movie because he wanted to give, these roles to these women, you know, he Mm -hmm. saw women of a certain age, you know, in Hollywood, not getting, you know, meaty kind of varied parts. And he just wanted to make a movie that was about, you know, a love for women. And each one of the the actresses, he had each of them write the letter to Dawn that that comes at the beginning, but he had them like write it in as their own character. So each one was different. And then he like used that to kind of learn about, you know, the actresses and the characters and everything. And then the actual letter that's in the movie that's read is kind of like a combination of things that he pulled from each of them. And it just like that kind of quality of the movie almost being like a Rubik's cube of like trying to like put it together, but like you can never quite get it the same way that Don does. I mean, I love that ending is so good. And like, even, even through like the, the course of the movie, these different young men that he's seeing, you know, at the start of his trip, he sees this kind of like Lothario on the bus yeah. that these young women are ogling over. And that's how he sees himself, you know, at the beginning, he's like, oh yeah, that's me. You know, that's what I'm doing. I'm going on this journey to meet all these women that I bedded, you mm-hmm. know? And then later he meets, when he gets back, he meets Mark Weber's character, who is this kind of like philosophical, you know, kind of sad, you know, a little bit alone kind of guy who looks like out of place. And he asks, you know, Bill Murray about, 
philosophy, what his philosophy is. And his only philosophy is really just, you know, the past already happened. The future hasn't happened yet. So all we have is the present, which is very simple, but very like apropos. Um, and very and Jarmish. Yes. And very, very Jarmish. Yeah. I yes. think that he, so he said that that's, that's like all he can really say, you know, that's all he can really say about what philosophy really is, is that's, you know, all we got. And then after that, so then he thinks that that's, you know, his son, he's like, oh, I'm having this connection with this guy who just got, you know, off like the the plane or whatever and so like obviously this guy is my son like i'm having this connection but then the the kid is freaked out by him when he's like i'm your dad by the way like no no no, i know i know what you're here for and then he sees the vw come by with another guy who's you know making eye contact with him who's you know finally played by bill murray's actual son and yes and it's like (laughs) a car out of time a VW yeah. and you start yeah, thinking he's, he's remembering what he used to be like or exactly. you know, looking at the past. And so there yeah. is a question of were these young men him or were they exactly. you know, fragments of his imagination? And yeah, there's a lot to this. When I gave um, this like lecture and we discussed it with the audience, they kept turning it around on me and wanting to talk about like <laughs> lost in translation or other Jarman <laughs> right, yeah. because they were so frustrated. They, they enjoyed the film, but they were extremely frustrated and like, yeah, Jen, but who is it really? Who is the mother really? <laughs> and I'm like, I didn't write the movie, you know, uh, and we're not yeah. supposed to know. That is not like, the point. <laughs> that is not the point of the film. And yeah. then it did turn into a little bit of like a, a murder mystery book or, but, yeah. you know, a romantic mystery as mm. people were, you know, zeroing in on lines of dialogue. <laughs> like the ones at Conroy's house are so strange. Like mm-hmm. uh, be a mother to Ron's children or have <laughs> children of our own. And so yeah. the way those things are phrased, you start thinking, was there a kid before? Or yeah. this is a weird way to put that you don't want to have children or you're not having children. And then uh, we keep seeing a little, as you said, pink herring everywhere that we yeah. go. And, you know, that's what everyone wanted to focus. It was like <laughs> lost in translation other Jarmish movies and but who is it really and yeah so it was quite a strange uh post-film discussion <laughs> but you know I love this one I also love I mean the women in this movie are fabulous so good but Jeffrey Wright steals every scene he's in like yes. you just want a movie with Winston as like yes. a detective I, I yeah. don't know yeah, I know that's every single time that I watch the movie. That's like my as as much as I love like truly everything about the movie, the music, which we haven't like gotten into too much yet. I love the music, but yes. Jeffrey, the thing that I come away from it the most is like I want a whole series of movies of you know Winston solving you know mysteries or whatever. Yeah. And you know the the idea about the mystery not getting solved. Like one thing that I find really interesting is kind of picking at the idea of maybe, you know, there is no son at all. Maybe it's an ex like messing with him or maybe even I like, I think my favorite theory that I've had is that Winston sent the note because he wanted to go on this, you know, this hunt and, you know, make this mystery happen. And any of them are as realistic as anything else. And yeah, that's very frustrating. Yeah. 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 Exactly. You wrote the letter, which I love. Yeah, exactly. It's like, it's like a little line that's just kind of like dropped, but Mm -hmm. it like sticks with you because I mean, it's, just as likely as anything else. I think, I think it feels even more likely than any of the women being, you know, the, the mother because of the way that they react to it, you know, they don't really give any tells that, Mm -hmm. you know, they, they had the song with him. And yeah, that's a very frustrating uh, screening for you to have because it really does Uh. miss 
the entire point of the movie. This is the point of the film. Yes. But no, I love that it did provoke so much imaginative thought afterwards, for sure. Yeah. And I think it's one that they were going to show other people, but they were going to show them with that sort of David Lynchian fan thing of like, we're going to watch it again. And this time we're going to yeah. solve it. Yeah. And do a <laughs> yeah. minute by minute podcast. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but yes. Yeah. Call Blake Howard. What? Get him on that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure he would definitely be down for it. He would. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, one thing about Jeffrey Wright that I read while just reading like interviews with Jarvis uh, researching this is that he was like Jarvis was saying that Jeffrey Wright was always like on the phone um, while they were making the movie while they were shooting it and he would be on the phone sometimes like right up until like they were about to shoot a take and Jarvis at one point was like asked him was like are you like are you all right is everything all right like you were you've been on the phone like a punch you were just on the phone and Jeffrey Wright was like Oh yeah, 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 everything's totally fine. I um I keep calling up the Ethiopian embassy and just coming up with random questions to ask them because I just want to hear their voice because he's oh, doing wow. like the accent for it. And just the idea of Jeffrey Wright just coming up with random questions to call the Ethiopian embassy <laughs> so that you can hear the accent is just like such a it's like such a Winston thing to do too. It's like it almost is. in character. He's probably on a list now at the Ethiopian yeah, probably, embassy. Yeah. They're like, what is with this guy? Jeffrey this phone Wright? number. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, no, it is such a good movie. I'm really glad you chose it because it had been so long since I saw this one as well. And lastly, we have what is, I believe, to be, along with Stranger Than Paradise and Night on Earth, one of Jarmusch's truest masterpieces in the form of 2016's Patterson, a hypnotic tone poem about the inspiration you'll find in daily life if you stop, take a breath, slow down, and look around. The film, which is set in Patterson, New Jersey, stars Adam Driver as Patterson as well, the sweetest bus driver you would ever want to meet. Driver's lead character lives with a wife he adores, played by Golshifta Farahani, and the way the two inherently support and nurture one another in their various artistic passions, his to write poetry and hers to create and sell cupcakes and play country music, is a true balm and inspiration to us all. Let's dive into Patterson. How much do you love this movie? Very, 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 very much. It's especially rewatching it this time. You know, I've always said that Mystery Train is my favorite, Jim Jarmusch. Rewatching it again, I was like, it might be Patterson. Like it's it's yes. very close, one and two, I think. And I so I saw Patterson when it first came out and like absolutely loved it right away. And now though it has an even more special place in my heart because when I um when I got my COVID vaccine, when I got my second shot, I got really sick um for like the you know day or two after it. Mm-hmm. And so I just, you know, took off of work and just wanted to watch, you know, movies to to feel good. And I was talking to um Sam, my partner, and you know, they were like, we weren't, we weren't living together at the time. So they were, you know, separate from me, but they were like, you know, do you want to, to just kind of like relax and like feel comfort? Do you want to like pick a movie and we can both like watch it together, like at the same time kind of thing. And we were trying to decide what movie would be best to watch to feel comfort. And I think it was them who came up with Patterson um, as an idea. Cause they had, they had seen it a couple of times before too, at that point. And it was, I mean, we did that and it was the absolute like best movie. It's like the best, like sick movie. It's the best like movie to just feel a sense of calm and like tranquility with the world, the best kind of movie to make you want to like go for a walk and just experience yes. life. Even, you know, if you are living in a place that doesn't feel 
inherently like very beautiful wouldn't be on like a postcard necessarily but you can just experience like these little observations and the minutia of like day-to-day life that really find that you know beauty in the world and it it gets that every single time every single time i watch patterson i appreciate being alive like more than i did before i started watching it and it's really rare to have a movie that does that in general, but also one that reliably does that. And like every single time that I watch it, almost feeling like I'm, it's like I'm watching it for the first time, but I'm also reuniting with like a friend that I haven't seen in years and like immediately feeling that sense of like comfort and just like that dynamic of being like back together. It's, it's so sweet. It's so touching. And especially after a few years of Jarmesh doing more genre kind of like experiments, like the limits of control was kind of like a European like spy movie. Then only love ourselves alive was like a vampire movie, which I like both of those movies, but Patterson feels like it's more getting back in touch with, you know, him, like his like truest form almost in a way. I'm sure he would be mad at me for saying that, but it's like what it's what it feels like. Like it's just like his essence and mm-hmm. it's very much like an essence kind of movie. There's, you know, not not that his movies generally have plot, but it's not, you know, it's even less plotty. It really is just about observation. You know, Patterson is somebody who is so much about routine. And within that routine, he can observe these little details of life and, you know, find these observations. And then, you know, Golshate Farahani's character is the opposite of that. She's so, you know up and finding all these different like exciting cool things that she she wants to be doing and you know i'm sure we'll talk about that relationship between the two of them more and it's because that relationship between the two of them is so beautiful and the way that they as you said you know in your introduction for the film the the way that they support each other and the way that they just you know support the lives and the behavior and the attitude that the two of them both have it's like the most it's it's not idealized in any way, but it's the most idealistic relationship like I've ever seen in a movie. Like that's what I, you know, hope yes. to have, you know, mm-hmm. with my partner. And I hope to like emulate that kind of support and encouragement, you know, with uh, the person that you're with, whether, you know, even if it's not a romantic relationship, just in like friendships too, like having that kind of, you know, bond and, you know, encouragement with each other, like for who you are is like so beautifully realized in the movie without it even needing to make like a huge point out of it. It really is. It reminds me of, you know, the principle of improv. Yes. And yeah. you don't want to be the person <laughs> to say no and to shut somebody down because he could have easily, like she is someone who is making gourmet cupcakes and, you know, has kind of a business or is thinking of being, you know, a cupcake queen essentially, yeah. <laughs> and then falls for the idea of playing a guitar. And, you know, I could be a country music star and you know, in everyday life, you're going to meet like, I would say 90% of guys at that moment would have probably been like, you know, that's not happening or stick with the cupcakes or that isn't realistic. And it's, you know, that improv uh, principle of yes. And like, I bet you could. And I just, I love that it doesn't seem condescending or that like, he's just paying her lip service. You know, he is her biggest fan. And he wants to support any creative impulse that she has. And I just, he loves everything about this woman and and she, him. And it's just the most beautiful relationship. You watch that movie and you're like, oh, wow. You know, that's what (laughs) love should be. I think uh, the film is a celebration of creativity and inspiration and finding that everywhere. 
you know, I think when you're young, you assume you need to wait for something to make your life begin, Mm. or you're waiting for, you know, your big break or whatever. And this is someone who is, you know, doing his daily job and writing the most beautiful poetry. So he's a poet and others have no idea because he keeps it to himself. And this came from um, Jarmish actually talking to a lot of poets and also Frank O'Hara, who is a big um, inspiration for uh, this film, was working in a museum, I believe, when he was writing poetry, like on his lunch hour or something. And he um, also had this theory that Jarmish talked about in an interview, which is that instead of writing a poem or trying to reach the whole world, which is very intimidating and could, yeah. you know, it would freak me out if I think of how many people might read something I write. <laughs> yeah. I can't write at all. But Franco Harris said you should write poems as if they're letters to one person. And so you kind of think as you're watching this movie that that is what Adam Driver's character is doing. He is writing poems for the woman he loves, or yeah. even if he doesn't read them to her. <laughs> He is like writing those with her in mind or trying to figure out his work. And I think it's a really good uh, celebration of the artistic, um, you know, process and the way that even his life of repetition, he kind of does the same thing every day. He goes home and then he takes the dog for a walk and goes to the bar (laughs) and then he comes back and he does it all again the next morning and it takes place over a week. And again, you have the post-industrial landscape, although in this sense, Patterson looks gorgeous. And Jarvis said that isn't what Patterson actually yeah. looks like. It is, it's a little dicier of a community, like it's yeah. more romanticized in the film. But I love the like the William Carlos Williams and some of the poems that are read over it. It's just such a beautiful film. I also want to give a shout out to um a young man who follows me on Twitter named uh, Gregory Buck Bell, who was very influenced by Patterson uh, when he first saw it. I guess it really got him into film. And years mm. ago, he, he used to read my, well, he still does read my stuff <laughs> all the time. And I actually heard from his mother and his brother, and they were working on a surprise for him inspired by Patterson um, and his love of it where they wanted me to submit some kind of writing or a quote about film or from film criticism that they could write by hand and put in a journal to inspire him, a la Patterson. I remember I took, I think, part of Roger Ebert's review of Red, which is my favorite uh, thing he ever wrote, the Kieślowski movie. But Mm -hmm. yes, so watching Patterson, I was thinking of uh, Buck and how much he was inspired by this and loving that Jarmish is encouraging and inspiring these young college kids today and, and younger. Yeah. yeah. Shout out. Yeah. That's, that's, that's really cool. That's like, I mean, and that's exactly what I think, you know, the movie is so inspiring, especially for, you know, people like him, people like us, you know, I, when I first saw the movie, I, wasn't a writer for like a career yet. I just did it for like a hobby. And I, you know, I had people who like, I've always loved movies and always like written about movies, you know, on like, even if it's just writing on my letterbox account or whatever. And like, people would always tell me, you know, you should do that for like a career or whatever you should, you should, you know, make money off of that. And I would like, when I was younger, I tried for like a little bit, like reaching out to places or whatever, but like, couldn't like, it was all stuff where it's like, you, know, you, yeah, you can, but we won't pay you or anything, you know? Yeah. And it's like, okay, well, there's not, 
there's not a career to make out of that. So like, I'll just keep writing on my letterbox, you know, and then work like my other jobs. And like, that's, that's fine. And I'm totally content with that, you know, and it's only now that I write for a living as well, but, um, yeah, watching it. So watching it with that in mind, where I also am writing professionally is like a very different kind of experience because I think, especially when you're writing professionally, you have this like different relationship with writing where it can almost become more like monet it's like monetized obviously and it can become more of this thing where you feel this like pressure and you feel this thing of like you know I'm writing this because you know other people are going to read it and what it's um I can't think of the right word it's like more it's like more like a market kind of thing for you where you want to hit you know the the readers what they're gonna like or whatever and you know you're writing for this large audience or whatever. Um, not to say that I have a large audience, but like writing for, you know, no more economically hoping. driven. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. More economically driven. You're you can threaten to lose the like pure kind of passion for it. And something that Sam always tells me when I'm like writing something is, you know, like I'll say that I'm really nervous. I'm really nervous of what the editor is going to think about it. I'm really nervous that people are going to like it. And Sam will always ask me, you know, do you like it? And it seems, it seems like such a simple thing. And it's like, like such an obvious question. And like, that's obviously like what's most important, but I often forget to think about that, you know, like if that's, if I'm turning it in, it means that I like it, you know, and yeah. that I feel good about it and proud about it. Cause I'm not going to turn anything in until I feel good about it. And that ultimately is, you know, what is most important. If I feel good about it, then, you know, that's, that's what matters. And I think that Patterson really hits that the idea of him writing these gorgeous, gorgeous poems and, you know, not having any intention of showing them nope. to the world or sharing them with the world. He's just writing them because he loves to write them and because like, that's what speaks to him. And yeah, I think, you know, especially for writers, I mean, obviously for myself, you know, you can speak for yourself as well, of course. Um, it, it really taps into reminding me why I love writing and it oh, makes me want 100%. to write more every single time that I watch it, which is really exhilarating because sometimes like you have a hard week and I just feel like I don't, have it in me to like do it anymore or whatever you know I the idea of a blank page is so scary but then yeah you watch this movie and I'm just like oh I yeah I want to write so much right now about so many things (laughs) yeah it really does I mean I've done this for so long now I yeah I kind of burned myself out because when I first started (laughs) out I was writing over like 450 pieces a year reviews I mean they were short but I was writing a lot And so I wrote over like 2,500 in the last 15 years and just kind of got burned out on writing standard reviews. And so now I'm only writing like when I want and pieces I want, usually career deep dives or movies that really inspire me. And so watching this was kind of reaffirming that idea of write for inspiration, but it's also a practice. Like he has to do this every day and practice makes perfect. My joke uh, (laughs) that I like to say with my friend Travis Woods is we hate writing, but we love having written. And uh, that's that's perfect. Yeah. That this movie, uh, my other joke is always like, I don't know if I trust a writer who loves writing, but then you meet somebody like um, S.A. Cosby or Sean Cosby and he loves writing and he's incredible at it. And you're like, buddy, can you give us some of your (laughs) notes? Because that would be marvelous. But when you watch this, it does make you excited to pick up a pen and uh, get in there and start writing. Do you like to write by hand? That's kind of a question I wanted to ask. 
I don't. Um, okay, I, gotcha. I, I really Compose. don't. I, yeah, I wish that I did because I like the tactile nature of it, but mm-hmm. I think, especially because I have, um, I have OCD that's like pretty bad, um, like oh, gotcha. diagnosed, like pretty severe OCD. So like I end up kind of like backspacing and like changing things a lot because like, I just think like it's like something's off or whatever. Um, even oh, if yeah, it's like, yeah. like sometimes I can like write something and it just doesn't like feel right. Like whatever mm-hmm. that, that means in like my brain. So I have to like backspace it and then rewrite like the same thing over again. So the, the idea of like having, um, like a pen and paper is like a little bit yeah. too much for <laughs> me, but you, you love, you love yeah. writing by hand, right? That's like your thing. I, do. Is I go by hand. back and forth on that, but, uh, mm. you know, my friend, Bill Goody Coons likes to write at the keyboard and he says something like he thinks through his fingers or thinks at the keys. And mm-hmm. I think that's a really good way to put it. So it's just kind of whatever works for you, but some pieces, yeah. you know, I need to write by hand and then other ones I, I go right to the keyboard, especially if I'm really yeah. stressing out or <laughs> wanting to correct and fix and and uh, start over again and again. I have to watch that sometimes because it's easy <laughs> to hit, you know, undo or delete. Mm. Oh, um, God, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think this movie is great um, for so many reasons. I also really get a kick out of um, the motif that is used of twins throughout the whole yeah. film. I think that is especially cool. He is somebody yeah. who loves a Jarmish like numerology and things that can yeah. be easily divisible. And so I should have been keeping track of how many times <laughs> we saw twins throughout on a bad yeah. post. Well, but, he, um, um, yeah. He said that he, when they started making the movie, he didn't have like the intention for the twins thing at all. They just like had, um, extras one day were a pair of twins and he just loved it like so much that he then started working that into the movie and he then had to figure out exactly that like how many twins is too many twins how many twins is not (laughs) enough so he said that they originally had a lot more twins in the movie than what we now see but he had to like cut down some (laughs) and yeah but yeah the numerology you mentioned um one of the things that um i heard him talk about was somebody asked him in ghost dog um every time ghost dog like puts the cd into the stereo he turns it to 21 volume and somebody asked like three what was specific about that yeah his jarmish's thing is that he likes things to be divisible by threes and so that's why it was 21 was just because he likes that number thing which is very as ocd you know for me very much anything for me is like numbers of eights like if i'm microwaving something it's always multiple like a multiple of eight Mm -hmm. um and like eights are like my like thing always. I set alarms to like eights. So like, it's just like oh, a fun cool. thing to like pick up on that in like a movie um, and just in like a filmmaker that I love to like mm-hmm. find out that like, yeah, that's the thing for him too, you know? Yeah, I love the twin thing is like just so cool. And then obviously the him being named Patterson and, you know, being yes. living in Patterson, mm-hmm. which comes from William Carlos Williams poem Patterson that mm-hmm. uses Patterson as like a metaphor, like a man as, you know, a city. Yep. Um, I love that you mentioned the that Patterson in real life, he said, is like not as, you know, beautific as it is in the movie because uh-huh. I so I live in Delaware and I live about like two hours away from Patterson. Oh, really? And cool. every time that I watch the movie, I'm like, I want Sam and I to make a trip to to Patterson to see, you know, the sites in the movie and everything. Obviously, some of them weren't in um, some of them weren't some of the locations were not actually in Patterson. The bar in the movie is the same bar from um, Trees Lounge, Steve Buscemi's film, which I literally found out like 15 minutes before we started recording. And I was like, I got to make sure to mention that because that's so cool. And it's in like Queens, 
So like that, they, he couldn't find like the right bar for it. And mm-hmm. him and Steve Buscemi are obviously close. And Buscemi was just like, well, you know, the bar that I used in Trees Lounge is like really cool. And so he just ended up using the same bar. But yeah, like I really want to take like a day trip to Patterson, like see, you know, the falls in the movie and everything. But then like, yeah, he said that it's not the best place actually. So I'm like, oh, I don't know if that would be the best idea or not. But I think, I think we'll, we'll still do it at some point. Hopefully I think that it's, you got it, right? You have to, and then take photos and like, you know, share them with all of us. Yeah. When I was watching it, actually, one of my best friends is Kate Gabrielle and she lives Mm -hmm. in Hamilton, New Jersey. And I was like going on Google, like how far away is that? If I I go visit Kate there, because we're planning to take a trip, but on the West half of the U S for this year. And I was like, well, what if I went there and we could go to Patterson? (laughs) And so I was was doing all the scheming. Oh, it's 50 minutes away. We got to go. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, no, it's so good. I also, uh, we should probably give a shout out to the poet whose work uh, is used in the film. Ron Paget provided the poems that are attributed to the character Patterson, but Jim Jarmusch was the one that wrote the poem (laughs) waterfalls that is uh, written in the movie by a young girl, kind of like ghost dog. Again, you have our character uh, befriending a young girl who in this case is a young aspiring poet and reads just the most beautiful poem. My goodness. Yeah. 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 He, um, he said too, that he, he wrote the poem. He wanted Paget to like, fix the poem like he wrote the poem and wanted Paget to like do a poem based on kind of like what he was writing or whatever or, like have Paget like write the poem and Paget was like no like that's perfect do not change a thing I will be very mad at you if you change oh. you know this at all like it is it's so beautiful it, it really is like a beautiful poem that does still feel like it could come from you know like a young girl it feels like a poem that a young girl who is very interested in poetry would yeah, write very precocious yep yeah exactly and it's yeah it's it's really touching and yeah it is it is a scene like in ghost dog that every time i see it i'm like this is a little bit creepy maybe I, if i was the mom <laughs> coming to pick up the girl i wouldn't feel You're great like, why about why is she talking to a grown man yeah but... this very tall yes. man <laughs> this bus but, driver yeah in yeah. like we mentioned him before a david fincher movie it'd be like whoa yeah yeah but, yeah exactly. uh, <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> but, and i like i love too that when he um when he's telling you know his partner about it and he's like i met this girl today who was really interested in poetry and she's like you met a girl and she's like kind of like ups- like inquisitive yeah. but also maybe a little bit upset and he's mm-hmm. like oh no 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 like like a, a little girl, a little girl. A little girl. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's such like a sweet moment the two of them have just like the best moments i mean the that idea of um the what you're talking about earlier the writing for you know one specific person kind of thing and it just always makes me think of the line in the movie where he says you know i wrote a poem about you today or thinking about you today and she's like is it a love poem and he says well yeah if it's about you i guess it's a love poem like it's Uh just it's so sweet it's yeah it's it's too good yeah i know it's just beautiful. Yeah. I love their relationship and how at the end of a you know busy day he'll come home and then they you know he changes his shirt and then they go to the movie and they go to yeah. the old monster movie. It's just yeah. yeah, they have such a good dynamic and she is his biggest cheerleader and wants him to do something with his poems and yeah. you know promise me and yeah. And I think also at the end um I don't know if we should spoil it, but something sad (laughs) happens involving his poetry and he seems like he's going to give up. And again, you have another outsider in America, a Japanese tourist who happens to be there, who gives him a journal and, you know, inspires him to keep writing because they have this bond about Patterson. And I love that. 
Yeah. 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 It feels like, like he really captures because so many great poets come from Patterson or have like involvement with Patterson and everything. And like, that's why Jarmish went there. He said he first went there like over 20 years ago. I got probably like 25 years ago now, like the interviews I was reading were probably from 2016. So like, you know, over 20 years ago, he went there just because of William Carlos Williams and, you know, all these great poets. And he just wanted to be like kind of in that presence and like feel that space. And you get that sense while watching the movie and especially in that, yeah, that little conversation between the two of them at the end is so beautiful. And yeah, it really ends on such a high note after what feels like a very low note. There's also that that moment is like really wonderfully cyclical. Um, but then there's also the moment earlier um, that I was thinking of that always I, it's one of those ones that I always forget. It's always like the small detail in the movie that I always forget about that scene where he's walking Marvin, the dog, um, to the to, over to the bar, and those guys pull up in the car and talk yes. about how expensive that dog is, and he better watch out because you know that dog's gonna get kidnapped or whatever. And you know, just from cinematic language, you just see that scene and you're like, oh, that dog's gonna get stolen later. Yep. You know, like why wouldn't it? That's you know, Chekhov's gun kind of thing. Like mm-hmm. that's for sure gonna come back later. And it just never does. Like, never does. Yeah. It just Don't never, get dog napped and he does. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's yeah. it's such it's such a great little moment. It's such a great that idea of him constantly upending expectations like in every movie in the smallest ways and you know larger ways too, but even in little ways like that is like so fun to watch and like rediscover when you rewatch the movie, because you kind of forget about that by the end of the movie, the first time you watch it, and then you watch it again, and you're like, oh, yeah, nothing ever happened with that. Yeah, and that's throughout the film, actually. Yeah. You hear these men on the bus um, just telling, like, the dumbest stories, the bragging about the women that apparently yeah. wanted them, that they happened to, you know, they were a little tired that day, so they didn't do anything, <laughs> yeah. or whatever the case, and how he just kind of lets all of the bullshit of everyday yeah. life or toxic masculinity just sort of bounce off of him and stay in this um, beautiful artistic state that... Uh, yeah he chooses to go with. And I also love that he was a Marine. You see like a picture of him at the beginning, you know, it goes yeah, to Adam the real Driver. Picture of him. Yeah. And uh, like his skills might come in handy later on. We're not going to spoil right. all of it, <laughs> but, uh, but in a way you don't expect and almost just like besides the point. And yeah, yeah expect the unexpected when you're dealing with Jarmish. <laughs> but I know these were the films that we opted to cover um, because if we would have done more, I would have kept Mitchell all weekend. <laughs> uh, but before I let you go, are there any other Jarmish movies you want to recommend listeners should seek out? Oh, yeah. You know, I think, I mean, he's a director that I really just, you know, at least like, if not love everything he's done. So I don't think that you can really make a wrong step with Jarmish. I like, okay. and especially with like a director like that, I love the idea. If you're, if, you know, somebody listening isn't familiar with him at all, there's certainly, you know, really good entry ones like Stranger Than Paradise, I think is a really mm-hmm. good entry one, Mystery Train probably. But I also just love the idea of going chronologically with, you know, a filmmaker if you're discovering them, because I think yeah. that seeing his evolution is really wonderful but um yeah stranger than paradise i think and night on earth are probably my two favorites that we didn't like explicitly Mm -hmm. talk about um so i would definitely recommend those for anybody who hasn't seen them yeah same but mitchell i want to thank you so much for doing this this was such a pleasure i really appreciated it and i learned so much about you and jarmish and yeah (laughs) this was a real treat yeah, for me too. I mean, yeah, yeah, for me too. It really has been something that I've been wanting to have happen for a long time. And, you know, as a big fan and just, you know, somebody who 
likes to um, be able to consider you a friend at this point from, you know, being able yes. to interact. It's nice to actually just hang out and talk one-on-one for, you know, a while about a director that we both love. It really has been a really great conversation and a great time. Thank you so much for having me on. Of course. And you're coming back. <laughs> yeah. Willem Dafoe. It's happening. It's happening. Yes. <laughs> I also want to thank everyone for listening, especially my patrons who support the show and help fund my research equipment, film rentals, RSS fees, and more for as little as a dollar per month at the Film Intuition Patreon, which is the home base for the show. Other ways you can support the podcast are by sharing, reviewing, and subscribing to Watch with Jen wherever you get your podcasts, and also checking out the cool merch store hosted and created by our talented logo designer, Kate Gabrielle. You can find the merchandise store, including shirts, tote bags, stickers, and more by visiting filmintuition.com and clicking on the shop link. The show's theme music is solo acoustic guitar by Jason Shaw and is available in the free music archive. You can also reach me or interact with Watch With Jen anytime on Twitter, either at Film Intuition or our Watch With Jen account as well. Well, until next time, please take care and happy movie watching. This is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen.